Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. If you're, if you're trying to like, follow along in an actual Bible, Ezekiel 18, I'm going to get to that in just a second. I get to open the Bible tonight and um, I take that very seriously. I love it. Um, I've dedicated my life uh, to it and to being able to communicate it in interesting ways. And when you, when you open a scripture, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? What difference does it make if we understand the intricacies of the details of something? If we can't take it to tomorrow, we're just boring theologians. We don't want to do that. So we're going to look at this and make it come alive. For those of you who don't know me, which would be almost all of you, this is, this is all I do for a living. For, seven, for the last 17 years, I've traveled around the world um, trying to connect people to the grace of Jesus Christ. Anytime I speak, I want a few things to happen. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I want you asking more questions about the Bible and not less. I want us engaging the scripture more. And so hopefully we will do that tonight. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor who just happens to have his rabbi training as well. So all my stuff comes from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I am qualified to sort your head out. So careful what you say to me. I can see through all that stuff. On your way out, um, in the foyer area there, there um, there is a table set up with all of my resources. If you walk out there and you can't find it, seek medical help. It's taken up half the room, okay? And if you wonder, why would you carry that around with you? The reason is, is because we make a lot of money from it. The reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so... 100% of everything we make from that for the last decade, we've given to the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha, um, with obviously the goal of getting them adopted into healthy families. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, but we don't just do that. We get them off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats, right? And so if you would come out and say hello to us, um, everything's available in audio, video, USB, direct download, and that's where that's going. And so uh, that's that's what we live to do. We live live to be Jesus in our world, to make sure that that the world is a better place. It it doesn't do Christianity any good to be the type of Christian that if the whole world became a type of Christian you are, that the world's not better. That would be terrible. And so what we want to do is we want to be the kinds of followers of Christ that bring heaven to our earth. We want to say yes to the infinite possibilities every day to bring heaven here. And so with that, let's look at this scripture. So here's what's happening. All right. Um, This scripture is like 3000 years old. So when you're looking at something that's 3000 years old, you want to ask yourself, man, who wrote it? Who was it written to? How would they have taken it at the time it was written in? You, the, the language they used back then doesn't mean the same thing as today. So let me see if I can set this up. There's a guy named Ezekiel, and he's writing to a bunch of Jews who are slaves in Babylon. And he's trying to encourage them, and he encourages them a little bit at first by slapping them around a little bit, right? And so it goes somewhere really, really good, but it starts out really, really challenging. And so this is Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 1, let's look at this, ask ourselves what happened, and then ask ourselves what happened in me right now because of what happened. Ezekiel 18, verse 1, if you could bring that, here we go. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and now it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. 
As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. My father ate sour grapes and now it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. My mom ate sour grapes and now it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. And God says, I don't want to hear that coming out of your mouth one more day, which leads to a couple of questions. One, what does this proverb even mean? And two, why is God so apparently ticked off about it? Now, to understand this, we have to understand where these people came from. They were Israelites who were enslaved in Babylon. So to understand what's going on in this passage, we have to understand a brief history of Israel. So here is the entire history of Israel in two minutes, okay? You got to pay very close attention. And here we go. There was a guy named Abraham and a son named Isaac and a son named Jacob who had 12 sons and 11 of those 12 sons sold their younger brother into slavery into Egypt only to later need him to save their sorry butts because of famine in Israel. And instead of killing them, he cooks them a meal and gives them a piece of land. And now this family is living in Israel and they started having babies and those babies had babies and babies and babies and more babies and 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 babies until they overpopulated Egypt. So the Egyptian king, a guy named Pharaoh, did the only thing he knew to do, which was to enslave this group of people who now have overpopulated Egypt. 430 years later, God raises up a deliverer named Moses to get the people out of slavery and into freedom by walking through the Red Sea. And he says, I want you to go start a nation that'll show the whole world what it looks like for me to be in charge. And remember, I'm a slave liberator. This, in short, turned out terribly. By the third king, a guy named Solomon, the book of Kings says, this is the account of the slave labor that Solomon forced to build the temple to the Lord. So if you're paying attention, a guy that comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forced forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the God who frees the slaves. And he failed to see the irony in that. This group of people end up back in slavery in a place called Babylon. And who do they blame for their slavery? Solomon. So much so that they wiped his name out of the historical record for hundreds of years, simply referring to him as David's son. It's David's son's fault that we are where we are. David's son failed. Why? Because if you want people to forget about somebody, you don't call them by their name. This is why if you've ever went through a divorce, you would never refer to your ex by their name. You refer to them as my ex or the children's father. Either way, it works. Let's people forget about them. So that's what they did. They simply referred to Solomon as David's son, David's son, which is why the prophets to Babylon had a message. Take heart. For God will bring a new son of David who will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Fast forward to Jesus. They called him lots of stuff. Jesus, our rabbi. Jesus, our savior. Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, our king. Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus, a guy that likes to fish. But the poor and the afflicted had one name for him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, are you the new son of David the prophet spoke about of old? Because if you're the new son of David, that means you're here for the poor. Newsflash, I'm poor, which means you're here for me. You understand the whole Old Testament now. Easy. So these people in Babylon are blaming David's son. Now, if you checked out in any of that or you got confused or lost, come back now. Here's what's happening in this passage. Ready? The current generation is blaming the previous generation for why they are the way they are. Because that's not relevant at all. We've never heard that before. Look, I've been pastoring since 1995. Your, your, your pastors have been pastors longer than that. And we love it. 
I love to open the scripture. I hope, I hope the scriptures come alive to you. I hope if you've never even thought of the book of Ezekiel, you'll go check it out, okay? I love that part. I love certain parts of pastoring atmosphere and, and, and building uh, meaningful experiences with the divine. But, but there's, certain, there's certain parts of pastoring we don't like, right? Like petty, boring theological discussions about verse that are inapplicable today. We don't like that, right? Quit asking us about it. We roll our eyes. We don't like it, right? That, that's one. The other thing we don't like, we don't like to, we don't like to confront people. It's a horrible part of the job. But occasionally, you have to confront someone with their behavior. And the number of times you confront someone, this is what you hear. Sir, cut it out, man. You got to get your crap together. Seriously. You're fixing to lose everything that's important to you. You got to get, to, get it together. And the guy goes, I know. I know. But if you knew what my dad was like, you would know why I am the way I am. Right? We're like, ma'am, seriously, cut it out. You're critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, controlling, and frankly, horrible. We don't know how to tell you this, but your husband is secretly praying for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you, right? And she says, I know, I know. But if you knew what my mom was like, you would know why I am the way I am. My mom was critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, controlling, and horrible. So I'm critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, controlling, and horrible. My dad was bad with money. So I'm bad with money. My dad was a drunk, so I'm a drunk. My dad was a bit abusive, so I'm a bit abusive. My father ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. My mom ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. God says, I don't want to hear that out of your mouth one more day. In no way is it empowering to any of us to blame someone else for why we are the way we are. Say, Shane, you're a stan, man. You're a stan. My parents had issues. Really? Did they? Let me ask you a question about your parents. Were your parents a man and a woman trying to live together? <laughs> then there's going to be issues. Why? Because marriage is hard. It's a blessing, but it's hard. Men and women are different. Even if you marry someone who's basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, marriage is still complex. It's hard. Marriage is so complex, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Like, is the Bible for or against marriage? Depends on who you ask. Solomon was really for it. So, and he wrote it too. He said, hey, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Rock right? Paul said, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. <laughs> who's right and who's wrong? Both of them. Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it. A lot. Paul's like, make it your last choice. Seriously, a lot of pain in that. And here's the other thing. See, in Jesus's day, the average age of death was 32. So till death do us part was way more doable, right? It's like, put over there, stuff for another 10 years, you'll die, it'll get better, right? Now we gotta live with them till 81, and you're looking across going, what the heck, man? Your parents had issues? Of course they did, why? Because men and women are different. Even if you married someone who's basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, there, there's complex issues. Just from basic, now if you marry a psychopath, what would you like me to do? But, because even two good-hearted people can be hard. 
Because men and women prefer different things. It's not right or wrong. It's just preference. I, I'll give you an example, right? Even something that's elemental. Smells. W women prefer sweet-smelling things. Flowers, perfume, candles. You hand a woman a bouquet of flowers, every woman in this room is going to sniff it. Yeah. You hand a man a bouquet of flowers, all he smells is 70 bucks. That's what it costs. I don't know. You go to a big enough mall, you can find two women in a candle shop. Two women can sniff wax for an hour and call that fun. You'll never see two men doing that. You imagine that? Hey, Billy, check that out, man. That's that new white lilac scent, man. That is something special. No way! No way! Why? Because men prefer stinky things. It's in our DNA. Nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. We think that's hilarious. Women find that disgusting. And these people are supposed to live together? Like, even if, you, even if you train a man when he takes off his work clothes to put the work clothes in the dirty clothes hamper thing, right? Even if you train a man to do that, right? If you watch him, and he doesn't know you're watching him, he will take off his clothes. He will drop them in the dirty hamper. The last thing to always go with men is their socks. I don't know what it is with men. They'll stand there completely butt naked with socks on because nothing is quite as nauseating as seeing the side profile of a naked man in socks, right? It's a real appetite suppressant, right? What they do is they drop it in and they'll take those socks off that they've been wearing all day. I promise you before God, every man in here has done this at least once. They're holding their socks that they've been wearing all day and just before they drop it in, they give it a... <laughs> it's like we prove we work, right? And I promise you, if that doesn't smell bad enough, we'll do this, we'll go... <sighs> I think I can get one more wear out of these. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah. Your parents had issues. Of course they had issues. Why? Because men and women have issues. Why? Because of preference. That's the way it works, right? Language. A woman says, I have nothing to wear. A man says, you have a closet full of nothing to wear. You're a liar. But every woman knows what I have nothing to wear means. It means I have nothing new. Let's go shopping. When a man says, I have nothing to wear, he means I have nothing clean. Please do laundry. Two people saying the exact same thing, right? Of course there's issues. You say, Shane, you understand, man. You understand. My dad had issues. Really? Your dad had issues? L listen, everybody's dad has issues. My dad has issues. My dad's a good man. Let me be clear about that. My dad is a, my dad is a good man. It is 347 in the morning where he lives. And I can go ahead and tell you that at 430 this morning, he was praying for this meeting. And at 430 in another hour, he'll be praying for wherever I am. And, and I, he didn't write me. He didn't tell me. I just know because that's where he is every morning at 4.30 in the morning. He's praying for me. My dad's a real early bird, you know, always getting up early, always before everybody else. When I was a kid, it was 6. Went to junior high, it was 5.30. High school, it was 5. Went to college, it was 4.30. Now he gets up at 4.15 to pray at 4.30. I was talking to him the other day. I was like, Dad, what's up? He said, I'm thinking about getting up at 4. Start my prayer time at 4.15. I was like, Dad, if you live 10 more years, this is going to have to eat breakfast the night before. This is ridiculous. <laughs> My dad's a good dude, eh? He's a good dude, but he's got issues. Like, one, he liked to scare us. And I don't mean like a mild boo. I mean scare the stew out of a six-year-old. Like, I, I have never, ever, ever been a morning person in my whole life. I've always stayed up late and sleep in a bit. I've always got a lot of good work done at night. Never. Even when I was a kid. So I'd come in, my mom would wake me up in the morning, she'd shake me awake, you know, and sit me up on the side of the bed. I had this horrible habit of falling back asleep, sitting up. 
So my dad thought, you know what? I'm going to break him of that. I, 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 I'm going I'm to break him of that habit. This is terrible. And my dad's idea to break me of that, since he was up before everybody else, was he would hide under my bed, right? Now, of course, my mom doesn't know about this. She she's would never have allowed it. My dad's hiding under I'm six. Let me be clear. I'm six. I think the boogeyman lives under there anyway. So my dad hides under my bed. My mom wakes me up, and I'm just about to fall asleep. And my dad reaches out and grabs my feet. <laughs> Your dad had issues? My dad also liked to embarrass us. He thought it was hilarious to embarrass us. Thought it was just so funny. He was dropping me off one time for Bible camp. I don't, I don't, I don't even know if y'all do that here. In, in the South in America, it's a thing. In summer, everybody gets together and goes to Bible camp. So I, anyway, so, so, so we're pulling up to church to go to camp, Right? And my dad, my, dad says, my dad says, son, I love you. I believe in you. I'm going to pray for you every day that God will touch your life while at camp. Now, you've got to picture this. There's 110 13-year-olds going to camp. Two full American-sized school buses, right? What could go wrong? Dad pulls up, says, I love you. I believe in you. I'm going to pray for you every day. I said, love you too, dad. See you later. He goes, hang on. Where's my kiss? I was like, Dad, honest to God, not here. Look, there's a hundred of my friends. Like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you? No, no, please don't do that here, right? He goes, oh, I get it. I get it. Go ahead. So I get out. I hand my bags to the bus driver. I get on the bus, 57-passenger school bus. I'm in the second to last row. We're fixing to leave. I look up, and to my horror, my father had decided to get on the bus. It was the middle of summer. It was 43 degrees Celsius, 90% humidity. He had his shorts pulled up to here. Black socks up to here, shirt tucked in, and he got on the bus with a limp. And he grabs the microphone to the bus and he says, Excuse me, everybody, this bus isn't leaving until my Shaney Wayne comes up here and gives me a kiss. The whole bus starts chanting, Kiss him, kiss him, kiss. Your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. The question isn't whose dad has issues and whose doesn't. The question is, are we doomed to perpetuate their issues into eternity? That's what the question is. The question is never whose dad has issues and whose doesn't, whose mom has issues and whose doesn't, whose parents had issues. Can we just all be in this together? All of our folks had some sort of issue somewhere, right? The issue is not who had issues and who doesn't. The issue is, is am I free to make my own way? Am I free to choose a different path? Am I free to do that? The other question is never what is normal. That's the wrong question to ask, because here's the thing. What we think is normal is ingrained in our brain by the age of eight, and it was formed by your parents. So the question isn't, is this normal? Because sometimes normal is good. Like we bathe once a day. Good. We wash our dishes after we use them. Good. Good. We speak peacefully to one another in conflict. Yeah. Sometimes normal is terrible. We all get drunk and wasted every weekend. We're all promiscuous. Sometimes what we think normal is, is actually light. Sometimes it's dark. And so the question isn't, is it normal? The question is, it, is, is it life and light or is it death and darkness? Because when an ancient prophet used the word light and life or death and darkness, they weren't talking about going to hell when you died 
or going to heaven when you died. They were talking about the way you live here. The words were death and darkness were anything that leads your life to disrepair. And life and light was anything that leads your life to wholeness. And in scripture, it's presented as a choice. Choose life that you might, life and death, choose life. Choose to be in the light. This is obviously not literal life and death. This is a realm of living that talks about living in abundance and peace now, or your life goes to disrepair now. Now he is fixing to shift gears here because the, the answer to the question is not what is normal. The answer is, is what is light and life and what is death and darkness? And to choose to be free to perpetuate life and light and to eradicate death and darkness. Now, this is verse four. Watch what he says. This gets really good news pretty quickly. Watch this. For everyone belongs to me. Ooh, everyone. In other words, see, they believed two things back then, 3,000 years ago. They believed two things back then that we would never believe now. The first thing they believed is that God was for certain people and against others. Now, we've journeyed way past that because of the finished work of the risen Christ, and we would easily with conviction say God is for the whole world, that God is for the whole world, and he's at work in the whole world, and our job is to help the whole world name and participate in what he's up to inside of people, right? So, so but they didn't believe that. They thought God was for certain people and against other people. And then the second thought they had that we would never think is this, that it was possible for a great-grandson to be destroyed by God for the actions of his great-grandfather, even though his great-grandfather had been dead 50 years. So they thought it was possible for God to be punishing a person on the earth for something his great-grandfather did, even though that guy's been dead for years. And they thought God was for certain people and against others. So if your life was going good, they thought, oh, God is for you. And if your life wasn't going so good, they go, God's obviously against you, right? But, but this, this Ezekiel's changing the whole thing. He's saying, actually, God's for everyone. God, what? God is not for certain people. Not, for every living soul belongs to me. The parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. But the ones who sins is the one who will die. In other words, if someone's reaping the basic consequences of the death they're bringing to the world, that's not God. It's not God's fault. It's not Satan's fault. Poor Satan gets blamed for everything. He's flipping busy, right? Right? You, no, you, you, people say, Satan's attacking my finances. No, he's not. No, he's not. You bought something you can't afford with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. You're going to be broke for years because of that. That's not Satan's fault. Satan could take a, a vacation when it comes to finances with you because our own stupidity... <laughs> leads us to destroying ourselves, right? It's not God's fault, not Satan's fault. In general, it's our decisions that lead us to death or life. And can we be empowered? Here's what he does. It's such a long passage. Instead of reading the whole thing, I'm going to summarize it. And then we're going to come in. I'm going to show you how he concludes it. Here's what he does. He says, suppose a righteous man gives birth to a wicked man. And then that wicked man gives birth to a righteous man. So if you're paying attention, you have a righteous grandson, a wicked dad, and a righteous granddad. And he asks the question, who inherits what from who? Does the righteousness of the grandfather go all the way? Or does the wickedness of the father? Or does the righteousness of the grandson go backwards? Who inherits, who's God for and who's God against? And the answer is neither. Ezekiel changes the world with this thought. It had never been thought before. 
that every generation can stand on their own two feet before God and choose light and life or death and darkness, can choose God's ways or outside of God's ways, that every generation can stand on their own two feet and God meets you right there. Now, in that generation, that would have been called good news. That would have been called the gospel. Wait a minute, you mean God is not gonna destroy me for something my great-grandfather did? Nope, not if you choose light and life, nope. No, you choose light and life and change your family tree. This is going to get real beautiful real quick. Oh, no. And you've got the authority to do that. You absolutely does. Now, now watch. In, in verse 17, he, he closes it out after that illustration. Here's what he says. Verse 17. He will not die for his father's sin. He will live. This is talking about the righteous grandson. But, but the father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst his people. Yet, yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Now, why would they be asking that? Because that's what they were taught their whole life. They were taught their whole life that if your dad does something, God's going to punish the next generations for it. Ezekiel's like, no, 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 no. no. Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep my decrees, he'll live and not die. The one who sins is the one that will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent. Amen. Nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. Maybe a bigger Amen. The righteous of the righteous, the righteous of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they've committed and keeps by decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live and not die. In other words, if you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease, if you're on that path, you have one choice, turn around, and you're never too far down the road of death that you can't turn around and change your life. Never. No matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're always one decision away from turning around and entering into life, light, and increase. You're one choice away. And actually, that's your only choice because that road goes off that cliff. It doesn't matter what you intend. And the intention of our heart never determines where we go. It's always the road we're on. If that road's leading to destruction, it's leading to destruction regardless of intention. And we have one choice to turn around. So, so my challenge for us tonight is this. Is I, my challenge is not whether God loves you. I affirm God loves you. My challenge is not does God forgive you. I affirm God forgives you. I affirm that he did that before the foundation of the world because of the finished work of Christ. It's not about that. I'm talking about the quality of your life. Is the road that you're on leading to life and light or death and darkness? And if you're on the road to death and darkness, you have one choice. Turn around. And tonight's your night to do that. Tonight is your night. You'll never regret that. Turn around. Now watch, watch what he says. None of the offenses they've committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they've done, they'll live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? In other words, God's not a God watching someone destroy themselves and loving it. He's not, hey, hey, angels, come check this guy. That road goes off that cliff, this guy. I, I love proving I'm right. Hey, watch, this is gonna be so good. No, that if we're on the road to death, the God we serve is a God putting up warning signs. Get off the road, take the next exit, danger ahead. Hey, at least change lanes. Do something different, right? Hey, but if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will they live? No, none of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness, they're guilty of it. Because of the sins they've committed, they'll die. I, I, this is so wise. Essentially, Ezekiel says this. If you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease, you have one choice, turn around. But if you're on the road to life, light, and increase, you have one choice, 
keep going. That good decisions do not work like savings accounts. I wish they did, but they don't. That if you make 20 years of great decisions, you don't, you do not then get 20 years of bad decisions before you get back to even. It's not how it works. Whoever has the best marriage in the room, and I hope it's you, whoever that is, your marriage, even if it's the best in the room, is one bad decision away from going wobbly. Your business is one poorly thought out decision away from going wobbly. Essentially, Ezekiel says, hey, if you're on the road to death, you have one choice. Turn around. If you're on the road to life, you have one choice. Keep going every single day, dedicating your life to the risen Christ and his purpose to choose life, right? Yet you say the way of the Lord's not just. Hang on. When you present something that isn't what someone was taught their whole life, they're going to push back even if it makes more sense. Yet you say the way the Lord's not just, hear you Israelites, is it my way that's unjust or is it yours? Because here's your way, that someone's life can be destroyed because of the actions of a dead person. Does that sound fair? No, my way is better. Watch what he says. Is my way unjust? If a righteous person turns to their righteousness and commits sin, they'll die for it. Because of the sins they've committed, they'll die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they've committed and does what is just and right, They'll save their life. Obviously, this is not lit. Otherwise, you'd have people dying and resurrecting. This is metaphors, right? In other words, if you're on the road to death and disrepair and darkness and your life's spiraling out of control and you turn around, you can enter into life, light, and increase. But if you stay in light, life, and increase, that's fine. But if you turn around and go back to death, you can't help. It's not God. It's our decisions. It's, it's, it's us being empowered to take responsibility for ourselves. Watch what it, Because they consider all the offenses they've committed and turn away from them. That person will surely live and not die. Yet the Israelites say the way the Lord's not just? You tell me. Which one sounds more fair? Is it my ways unjust? Or is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you house of Israel, I will judge you, but each according to his own ways. Now, this would have been unbelievable good news. Hold on a second. You mean to tell me that God is going to hold me accountable? Fair enough but not for my grandfather, but for what I do with my life. I can stand on my own two feet and I can choose God's path. You mean to tell me that the days are over where God will judge me according to the sins of a dead person, but rather will let me have the grace to choose? This is unbelievable good news, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. That just means turn around. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Turn around and live. My friend on the slide, if you can go back one to the previous verse, if that's okay. Let me read 31 again. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone turn around and live. Now, that is my best effort at explaining what happened. Here's my question. What do we do with what happened? What do we do tonight and tomorrow and to change our lives? Because it doesn't matter if we understand what happened if we don't do anything about it, right? Our life is on the sand otherwise. So, so a couple of thoughts on that. Next slide. So all of us are formed by our history and heritage, Okay, so let me, let me stop and remove any guilt from that. It is not your fault. If you grew up in a destructive situation, you did not deserve that. 
It is not your fault. And I would say, if you grew up with great parents, you did not earn that. None of us introduced our parents. None of us gave them amorous feelings for one another, right? We don't choose our parents. If you grew up where normal was light in life, you ought to text them, write them, have a coffee with them, do something, and thank them for allowing you to start on third base, to use a baseball metaphor, right? But, you, but, if, it, but if you grew up with terrible parents, that is not your fault. You did not deserve this. I get why you are the way you are. I get it. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. If you sit with me for an hour, answer my questions properly, I can see why you are the way you are. That's actually the easiest part of the job. Ray Charles can see why you are the way you are. <laughs> I get it. Your mom was terrible. If your mom was half as terrible as you're saying, I get why you're terrible. I get it. Your mom was terrible. You're terrible. Get it? Hey, hey, your dad, awful. And because your dad's awful, you developed awful. I get it. What I'm looking at, awful. Why? Dad, awful. Mom, awful. I get it. Everybody, everybody can see that. That's not hard to understand. Here's the problem. You're 40, right? And at what point do you choose to draw a line in the sand that says just because my father ate sour grapes doesn't mean I have to perpetuate that into eternity. It is not our parents' fault for why we are the way we are, unless we're eight. If we're eight, their fault. If you're 28, time to draw a line in the sand. And that's the challenge Ezekiel is bringing with us tonight. Let, let, let's say it this way. Ne next slide. Since we all must take responsibility, turn around and live. Let me explain what that means. It means that all of us need to take an audit of our family habits. And the question isn't what is normal, what's not, because normal might be bad. The question is, is what is dark, what is light, what is death, what is life? And all of us will find things in our family tree that is life and light, and that needs to be perpetuated. But all of us will find things in our family habits that's death and darkness, and that needs to be eradicated. To use my story as an example, my dad's work ethic needs to go on. It does. It's light and life. My dad's prayer discipline needs to go on. It does. Absolutely. My dad's generosity needs to go on. Absolutely. My dad's love to scare six-year-olds needs to die with him, right? <laughs> All of us have something that if we perpetuated that habit into perpetuity, we're actually perpetuating darkness and death, regardless of normal. Normal's not the issue. It's what is wise, what is useful, what is light, what is life. It's that. We all must turn around and live. And here's the thing. I, I, want, I want to stop and I want to speak slow. In a room this size, it is statistically improbable that there's not at least one of you thinking this, and I don't want to leave this unaddressed, so I'm going to address it. Here's what you're thinking. Shane, good one. First of all, good sermon. Second of all, mildly entertaining. The comedy routine, spot on. But here's the thing. Here's my problem with what you're saying. You stood on a stage and you told the worst stories you could tell about your father. And they were hilarious. But if I got on that stage and I said what my dad did to me, or if I said what my mom did to me, 
it would not be funny. I wouldn't probably be allowed to share it from the stage because it's just too much. And this is why I avoid church on Father's Day and I avoid church on Mother's Day because somebody that's never met me is going to use the Bible to tell me I need to honor my father and my mother. And you know what? If you knew what they did to me, you would never tell me that because you can't honor them because of who they are. What would you say to me? Okay. If that's you, if you give me five minutes, I think I can help you, okay? First, I am so sorry for what you went through. That, there's no excuse to that. None. There is no file folder in a seven-year-old's brain to handle adult situations, to handle adult emotions, if your parents put adult stress on you, I am so sorry, and especially adult violence. When someone 10 times your size with 100 times your resources is doing violence on you, there is no place in someone's brain to handle that, and that is not okay. And I am very sorry for what happened. But the best hope for your life is that you honor your father and mother. Let me explain, though. The problem with the word honor is not the word honor. The problem is our imagination of what that means. So if I can change the imagination of what honor is, I think I can help you. See, for Western people, we think honor is what we say to somebody. I honor you. Which sort of sounds like it's okay what you did. No. In Hebrew culture, to honor somebody had more to do with what you do away from somebody instead of what you do towards somebody. Now, you know that to be true if you're a parent. If you're a parent of a 16-year-old and that 16-year-old says, Dad, Mom, I honor you. Well, that would bless your heart. But what's more honoring is knowing that when they're out with their friends at 11.30 at night, that they're acting in a way that honors your family values out there, not what they say to you. The same thing's true with pastors. If you told your pastor, Pastor, I honor you, he'd, that would bless their heart, and you should. But what's more honoring is that you live in a way that honors the values of Victory Church out there, not what you say in here. So what happened to you was abysmal. But you don't honor someone because they're honorable. You honor someone because you're honorable. And here's what honor is. Honor is not saying what they did was okay. It's not pretending it never happened. Honor is taking an audit of that family habit and choosing to perpetuate light and life into the future and choosing to eradicate death and darkness. And if you choose that, at some point, you'll be the hero of your family tree. And, and let me just say something obvious. If you don't choose that, you're going to leave it to your children to choose that. Why would you leave it to them when you could do it yourself? Let me see if I could illustrate this. I travel the world, and um, every now and then I get asked something like this. Shane, wow, you must come from a long line of educated preachers. Uh, no. All four of my great-grandparents could not read. They were illiterate. My great-grandfather made his living moonshining. If you don't know what that is, that's running illegal liquor across state lines. My great-grandfather was a member of the racist organization, the Ku Klux Klan. My great-grandfather was an illiterate, moonshining racist. Now, how do you get 
from illiterate, moonshining racist to what you see standing before you today, a guy who's dedicated his life to traveling the world, connecting all races, all people, all cultures to the love of Christ. How do you get from that to this? Here's how. My parents stood on their own two feet and said, no, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Our children will go to school. Our children will read books. Our children will learn the presence of God. And our children will not be racist because that's just stupid. And in one generation, they changed their family tree. And now people all over the world look at my life and they assume my great-grandfather was a preacher. Are you kidding me? And what better way to honor him than to live how I live today, right? I'm sorry for what happened to you, but the key to your life is to honor them. What does that mean? Choose to live in light and life now and perpetuate light and life forward. Let's say it one more way. Next slide. When we choose to live in God's ways, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Because see, there's one way to preach something like this, and this is how it sounds like. Okay, if you're here tonight and you need your heart healed, I want you to come here. We're going to believe God to heal your heart so that you can behave better. And we've all done that. We've all, we've all looked at someone behaving terribly, and we go, oh, bless their heart. If they could just get healed, it'd be better. Oh, bless their heart. Oh, they need a bit of healing. They just need some healing. You know? And you know what? Uh, maybe. But here's the thing. Ezekiel takes the exact opposite view. Ezekiel takes the exact... Because here's the truth. Some things, brace yourself, you can't be healed from. Some violations are so terrible, you want to be healed from that? No. Some abuses are so awful, you want to be healed. You're going to wait till you get healed from that to behave well. No way. Some divorces are so betraying, you want to be healed from that? No, no. Some things you can't be healed from. And that's the beauty of this passage. Ezekiel says, God is not interested in healing your heart. God is interested in giving you a brand spanking new one. Why would you walk around with a patched up heart when there's a heart transplant waiting? Here's what he says. If you'll by faith begin to live in God's ways and light in life, the heart transplant is wrapped up in the behavior. So I urge you, my brothers and sisters, to wrap your behavior by faith around God's life and light, not what's normal to you. And in so doing, you can be the hero of your family tree. Now let's, let's bring our life. Thanks. So let's bring our life and submit our life again to the risen Christ in this moment. I think in a moment like this, whether you've been following Christ for years or whether you're new to church or whether you're new to anything, we all have light and life in our family and we all have death and darkness. So why don't we just quietly cancel the white noise of our week and if you're brave enough, pray a prayer like this underneath your breath. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me the light and life of my family and give me the courage to perpetuate it? And would you also reveal to me the things that are normal to me, but they're actually death and darkness? Maybe you're sitting next to your spouse and you guys could make a commitment tonight to at least talk it through and say, is there anything we're allowing in our family that's just because of how it is? But it actually, if we're honest, it's not light in life. So Lord, would you give us the courage to see things different? The irresistible urge to respond to what we see. Give us the courage to act and be the, the hero of our family tree. Thank you for taking the time to listen. 
If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.